The Old Covenant reading for this evening is taken from the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 29. We'll be reading through verse 40 this evening. I do um, want to let you know that this will be our last sermon for a while in 1 Kings. As we come to the end of our study in the life of Ahab, and um, the Lord brings as judgment upon Ahab through uh, putting him to death on the field of battle. It's important as we consider the life of Ahab that we don't simply come and look for a moral example or a moral bad example in this story. I mean, after all, the point of this passage is not Ahab is dead, don't be like Ahab, right? The point of this story is to lift our eyes that we would see God sitting on his throne and it would change the way that we respond to him. 1 Kings chapter 22, beginning at verse 29. The word of the Lord. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle, but you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him. And Jehoshaphat cried out, and when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day, and the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians. Until at evening, he died. And the blood of the wound flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. So the king died and was brought to Samaria. And they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it, according to the word of the Lord that he had spoken. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did, in the ivory house that he built, and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the king of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 15, we'll be reading to verse 23 this evening. Romans chapter 6, beginning at verse 15, the word of our God. What then? Are we to sin because we are no longer under law, but under grace? By no means. Do 
you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you were now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please turn with me once again back to 1 Kings chapter 22, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our evening sermon. Hearing the word of God is an extraordinary privilege. It's an extraordinary privilege, but it will not do us any good unless we trust what we are hearing, and therefore we put it into practice. Well, the privilege should be obvious enough. As Paul would ask the church in Rome, what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the profit of circumcision? Do you remember his answer? Right? The, the, the question is, what advantage did the Jew have over the Gentile? Paul replies, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles, that is the word, of God. Now the Lord had given Israel a large number of extraordinary privileges. I mean, to point out the obvious, he had delivered them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, to get them going. He had given them the promised land, the sacrament of circumcision, the Levitical priesthood. He, he had set his own presence in their midst, in the tabernacle and in the temple. But when Paul thinks about all the privileges that Almighty God has given to his covenant people Israel, he says, chiefly, that is, this is the big one. He has given them his very own word. Uh, later on, Paul would tell Timothy that these holy scriptures are able to make a person wise unto salvation. No wonder the psalmist will exalt, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Now that's beautiful. And we contain more of the scriptures than they had. It's beautiful, but it is not the end of the story. Consider what we have been learning about Ahab over the past several weeks. You know, Ahab was the king of Israel. He was raised in Israel. He, he knew the Torah. 
right? He wasn't ignorant of what it said. He had been elevated to this exalted position of leading God's people as a shepherd, and he was entrusted with putting God's law into practice for the blessing of God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Lord through Moses gives this command for Israel's future kings. When he, that is this king, when the king sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priest, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and by doing them. Israel's kings were to handwrite out a personal copy, their own personal copy of the book of Deuteronomy. They were to keep this law from God with them all the time. They were to read in it every day. And they were to keep all the words of this law by doing them. Well, if you've read the histories of the Old Testament, you know this is not uh, a practice that the kings actually engaged in. Um, at least not very many of them. This is what they were supposed to do. This is what King Ahab was supposed to do. And God didn't even stop there with Ahab, and actually for several of the other kings. But particularly in Ahab's case, he not only had the written word of God, but the Lord repeatedly sent him his own commissioned messengers, his own ambassadors, the prophets, to bring him a fresh word of God to apply to his own circumstances. Uh, most famously, we have the dramatic encounters between Ahab and the prophet Elijah, but there are several unnamed prophets who bring Ahab the word of God, as it were, directly from God to him. And Ahab had seen God's word being fulfilled. Every single word from the Lord had proved true, and sometimes in astonishingly dramatic fashion. When Ahab uh, was drawn up to Mount Carmel by the word of the Lord, Elijah prays before Ahab, and God sends down fire from heaven. I mean, that really ought to get your attention. And the fire consumed the sacrifice on the altar. It consumed the water in the ditch around the altar. It consumed the stones of the altar, and it licked up the dust. And then Elijah prayed, and God sent rain that ended a three to three and a half year famine and restored the land. And God sent these unnamed prophets to him to tell him that he was going to deliver him against a vastly larger Syrian army, not once, but twice. And all those times, he had the word of the Lord, and then he saw it come to pass. If anyone ever had an experiential reason to put his trust in the word of God, it was Ahab. Ahab knew the word of God, but he hated it. Remember what he said that about Micaiah? When Jehoshaphat says, you know, you've got all these court prophets here just telling you what you want to hear, but is there not yet still a prophet of the Lord? And Ahab says, well, yeah, there's still one, and I hate him. 
He hated Micaiah not because Micaiah had a grating personality. I mean, he might have thought that. But he hated Micaiah precisely because Micaiah brought him the true word of God and he wanted to be king rather than the king who bows his knees to the king of kings and lord of lords. Last week, we looked at the dramatic encounter between Ahab and the prophet Micaiah. And as I say, Ahab knew that Micaiah spoke on behalf of the Lord, and he hated him for it. The Lord, through Micaiah, had made abundantly clear that if Ahab goes out into battle at Ramoth Gilead to try to get this little area, but basically a place that was going to put money into his royal coffers, if he goes out to battle, Israel's going to lose that battle. Right? The, the, the people of God are seeing like sheep scattered on the side of a hill, and Ahab is going to die. So what would Ahab do with that word? He has the word. What would he do with it? Verse 29. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. Beloved, let me say it again. Having the word of God, hearing the word of God, is an extraordinary privilege. But it will not do us any good if we don't trust it and therefore put it into practice. Having and hearing the word of God is not enough. Ahab is crassly snubbing what the Lord had told him through Micaiah. The author of 1 Kings is going to explore in just a moment how and why Ahab does this. But I think we need to ask a question before that, which is, what in the world is Jehoshaphat doing going with him? Because we know that Jehoshaphat, though he's a very foolish king, is in fact pious. He's the one that said to Ahab, is there not a prophet of the Lord? I want to hear a word from the Lord that comes from one of his true prophets. And yet Jehoshaphat heard the same message Ahab did. If you go up the Ramoth Gilead, you're going to lose in battle, and Ahab is going to die. So why does Jehoshaphat go up with Ahab to Ramoth Gilead? Two things. First, as is common in historical narrative, we are not told of Jehoshaphat's motives. So our conclusions in such circumstances should ordinarily be rather tentative, right? And when God tells you what it is, you go, I can plant my stake there. Here we have to say, well, it seems likely. Yet second... In this particular case, it seems rather clear why Jehoshaphat is following Ahab in the battle. Um, take a moment to think about what's going on, because it actually touches on something that each one of us needs to put into practice in our own lives. Uh, put into practice by avoiding doing what Jehoshaphat has done. So why do you think Jehoshaphat goes up to Ramoth Gilead going to a battle that Micaiah has already told him is going to be a disaster. Right back in verse 17, Micaiah clearly told the two kings, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master. Let each return to his home in peace. That is, if you go up the battle, you're going to lose, and Ahab is going to die. So why does Jehoshaphat go anyway? Pious King Jehoshaphat. And I think the answer can be found quite obviously in the rather rash decision that Jehoshaphat had made at the beginning of the chapter. Before he heard a word from the Lord, 
Josh Fatton let his rhetoric run. It was very rousing things to say, pledging his absolute loyalty to Ahab. Ahab had asked, Will you go with me to battle at Ramoth Gilead? And Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Beloved, if you were watching a movie, admit it, this is pretty stirring stuff. And he was doing this in real life. It was stirring, but it was extremely foolish. It was rash. Now, if Jehoshaphat backs out, he is going to look foolish or cowardly or both. Well, the application is not that complicated for us. We ought not to be making these rash sorts of commitments without seeking the wisdom of God in our own lives, consulting the word of God and also getting wisdom more generally before we do these things, just so we can pound our chest a little bit and feel good in a moment, Jehoshaphat has gotten himself into a serious bind. Regrettably, ancient kings are not the only ones to get this wrong. May the Lord grant us the wisdom to not enter into such foolish commitments, and if we do, may the Lord give us that genuine courage that says, I'd rather look foolish and cowardly in the eyes of the world than to disobey the word of God or to not take God's word at face value. After all, yes, Jehoshaphat would have looked foolish if he said, hey, Ahab, Micaiah has given us a word from the Lord. We need to change our plans. But beloved, one of the things I really hope you'll get into your life, deep into your bones, is you can be totally set on a course. And if you become convinced that's not what God wants you to do, you say, I'm done. I'm not going to go in a way that the Lord tells me leads to disaster. Well, that's Jehoshaphat. But what in the world was Ahab thinking? I mean, Ahab is the one who Micaiah specifically said is going to die in battle. Verse 30. And the king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will disguise myself and go into battle. But you wear your robes. And the king of Israel disguised himself and went into battle. And see, Ahab is, had consigned Micaiah to prison. Um, that could just be a practical thing. If Micaiah is running around telling people that the battle is doomed, then that's going to really demoralize the troops. Ahab being the type of man he was, he could have been doing it out of spite. I don't like what you're saying. I'm putting you in prison. But it's also quite possible that Ahab imagined that somehow locking up the prophet would have hindered his word in some way. Like, I can manipulate it and control it. And quite clearly, he seems to think that, yes, now I have this information about God and God's plans, and if I go out to battle, obviously being the king of Israel, I'm in, I might be in trouble. But he doesn't negate the prophecy altogether. He does take it with some seriousness. But you know what, if I disguise myself as a peasant soldier, then God's plans will be thwarted. Now you think about what an insane view of God that is. But the God who created the heavens and earth and who governs everything that exists, but his plan is going to be thwarted because I changed my clothing. But do you know what? Sin is irrational. And it's not just irrational when Ahab does it. It's very easy for people 
to imagine that when they hear something from God, that they can figure their way out around it. Perhaps the most common way people do this is simply by putting things off into the future. They, they hear God's word. They realize they ought to submit to Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior right now. They even realize that if they don't do that, they're going to be in serious trouble. And then they convince themselves with a clever plan. Well, but not so clever, young people. Please don't think it really is clever. I'll get around to that later before disaster falls upon me. I mean, that happens all the time in this world, and it's every bit as foolish as what Ahab is doing here. We don't control the future. We have no claim on the future. And so we ought not to be saying, well, I know I need to do this before I die, and I'll do it in 10 or 12 years. You know, after I've sowed my wild oats, or after I've gotten my career off the ground, or after I've gotten a PhD, or whatever it happens to be. And there are many other ways like this where people actually hear God's plan, and puny little creatures that we are, before Almighty God who knows everything, we imagine we can kind of trick our way through and make wise decisions so we don't have to face the consequences of our disobedience. It's worth noting, although it's not surprising, just how self-absorbed Ahab is. Uh, you know, the Syrians are going to kill the guy wearing the nice royal robes. Well, I won't do that. But Jehoshaphat, why don't you wear your robes in the battle? Right? I mean, I think quite honestly, he doesn't care if Jehoshaphat gets killed in spite of Jehoshaphat's deep pledge of loyalty to him. He's only thinking of himself. I mean, everything else we know about Ahab would say that's the sort of man that he is. He is quite content to let King Jehoshaphat serve as a target so long as he can reduce the risk of his own demise. The whole scheme reflects a Rather strange view, as I say, of the efficacy of the word of the God who created the heavens and the earth. We, of course, did not have control over the future, and neither did he. But the simple thing is, is we don't need to have it. All we need to do is rest in the hands and the promises of the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will, and then we're going to be fine. We are never more secure and safe than when we are pursuing God's will and trusting deeply in Jesus. Verses 31 through 33. Now the king of Syria had commanded the 32 captains of his chariots, fight with neither small nor great, but only with the king of Israel. And when the captains of the chariots saw Jehoshaphat, they said, it is surely the king of Israel. So they turned to fight against him, and Jehoshaphat cried out. And when the captains of the chariots saw that it was not the king of Israel, they turned back from pursuing him. Uh, you know, at first blush, it seems Ahab's scheme is working out pretty good, right? He, he might pull this off. And the king of Syria was not foolish about how things were working. He understood the only thing that Ahab wanted was some money for himself. Uh, the people that were out there in battle, they didn't have any particular beef against Syria. If we take the king out of the battle, the one who was lusting after money, if we take him out of the battle, the battle's over, right? Kill the king, we win, kind of like a chess game. 
And, and so he says, look, that's where I want you to focus all of your attention. The problem, of course, is that his commanders can only see one man on the battlefield wearing royal robes, and that's Jehoshaphat, the king of Israel. And so they get off on the wrong track. They're there pursuing the king of Judah. Um, I do wonder a bit here about Jehoshaphat. You know, uh, he's been a pretty foolish guy all along, but did he have a brief moment of clarity where he realized just how foolish he was when the chariot commanders set their march toward him? You know, I, I, I hope he got some clarity out of this. But he shouts out, and in any case, the Syrian captains take their orders rather seriously, and they do not even bother to take Jehoshaphat captive, right? The, the, the king of Syria had said, one goal, king of Israel, when they found out that he's not the king of Israel, they turn away. Actually, much later on, when uh, the author of Second Chronicles sets down the same report, he points out that it was the Lord who drew those troops away from Jehoshaphat reminds us how merciful God is. Um, God is showing through First and Second Kings that we don't want Jehoshaphat as our ruler, really much more, we'd prefer him, but really much more than we want Ahab, right? The wicked and shrewd king is bad, but so is the foolish and pious king, and yet God shows great mercy to both of them, and here he spares Jehoshaphat's life, though Jehoshaphat had gone into battle like a fool. Uh, verses 34 through 36. But a certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel between the scale armor and the breastplate. Therefore he said to the driver of his chariot, Turn around and carry me out of the battle, for I am wounded. And the battle continued that day. And the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians until at evening he died. And the blood in his chariot, the blood of his wound, flowed into the bottom of the chariot. And about sunset, a cry went through the army, every man to his city and every man to his country. Here, of course, we see the prophecy of Micaiah taking place, right? The, the, the shepherd gets killed on battle, the master, actually. Uh, he's not called the shepherd. The master gets killed on the field of battle, and all the people of Israel return home in peace. Nevertheless, the focus here is to make clear that Ahab's foolish attempt to thwart the word of God unintentionally makes the matter abundantly clear to us. Right? If he had worn his royal robes in the battle, we might have thought that's what they tried to do. But the fact that it's just someone shooting an arrow at random, not even knowing who he's killed, Right? That, that man does not know he has killed the king of Israel, makes clear that it was God who was guiding the arrow. As John Golden Gay points out, Ahab naively assumes that silencing the man who declares God's word will stop the word from being fulfilled. He was wrong. He also naively assumed that disguising himself from human enemies would stop the word from being fulfilled. Again, he was wrong. The man's arrow fulfilled both God's word to Elijah and God's word through Micaiah. 
There is, it turns out, nowhere for Ahab to hide. He cannot hide from the relentless negative purpose which the Lord has declared. Someone's not even named. A certain man drew his bow. He let the arrow fly. He drew his bow at random, and the arrow just happens to hit the vulnerable spot between the male armor and the breastplate. Uh, Humanly speaking, it's all just a wild coincidence. The Syrian soldier had no idea whom he had killed, but Yahweh knew, because Yahweh was sovereignly executing the sentence which he had previously declared against Ahab for his crass rebellion against the living God. Uh, We are told that as the battle continued that day, the king was propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians. Raises a rather interesting question. Did Ahab know that he had a mortal blow, that is, he's going to die, or did he think he was going to recover? The reality is we can't know for sure. It's one of those questions I wish we could know, but we can't know for sure. I, I do suspect that he realized he was in trouble in terms of his own life. And if that is correct, although we can't be certain, what he might have been doing is saying, I want to be propped up in battle, because if I die in battle for an Israel king, even if we lose, that's a noble death. I died fighting for my country. Furthermore, the fact that the troops could see him propped up in his chariot facing the Syrians might have given them steel in their spines to go on to win in victory. And at least this is true. If I die in battle like this, at least he's thinking, Micaiah's prophecy about me will not come true. Instead of being disgraced in death, I will be honored. Yet if Ahab is hoping to avoid the degrading death that both Elijah and an unnamed prophet and also Micaiah had foretold for him, time would quickly reveal But the Lord and not Ahab is the one who is working all things according to the counsel of his own will. Verses 37 and 38. So the king died and was brought to Samaria, and they buried the king in Samaria, and they washed the chariot by the pool of Samaria, and the dogs licked up his blood, and the prostitutes washed themselves in it according to the word of the Lord, that he had spoken. Once again, the key thing that the author of 1 Kings wants us to see is God's word has come to pass. Right? God's word is fulfilled because God is actively fulfilling it. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, they took Ahab's bloodied chariot back to Samaria. They hosed it down, and the blood, the blood of the king, ran off to the ground. The dogs came and lapped it up. Royal blood for the dogs. This is exactly what Elijah had promised. In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs will also lick up your blood. The total and final disaster to come upon the dynasty is still in the future, but there is enough disaster for the king to make one thing perfectly true, perfectly obvious to us all, the word of the Lord through his prophets has prevailed. 
The prostitutes uh, were not mentioned in the original oracle of judgment, at least as recorded in our text, but the idea is the same as with the dogs licking up Ahab's blood. Ahab was disgraced in death as part of the Lord's judgment on his persistent rebellion against the word of God. Yet intriguingly, this is not where the author of 1 Kings ends his narrative. See, the Bible is honest about people, and it tells us the fuller story. Verses 39 and 40. Now the rest of the acts of Ahab and all that he did and the ivory house that he built and all the cities that he built, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Ahab slept with his fathers, and Ahaziah his son reigned in his place. See, the biblical authors don't hide the truth. That in some ways, Ahab was an impressive king. A secular historian might not go so far to call him Ahab the Great, but they would say Ahab the Impressive. Other than the three years or so of famine in the land, his reign was one of economic prosperity and expansion in Israel. Uh, the battles that the Lord delivered him, uh, you know, it's God that we know that gave the enemy into his hand, but a secular historian would have said he defeated a much larger enemy. Ahab could easily be seen as an impressive secular ruler. That would be man's verdict upon Ahab's reign. But as Jesus warns us, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world if he loses his own soul? Beloved, um, at the end of the day, you might care about what people think when you die. But you know what people are going to do when you die? They're going to forget you. If you knew how fast people were going to forget about you when you die, you wouldn't care so much about what they thought and you'd rightly care about what God thought, thinks. The ultimate verdict upon Ahab's life is that he was privileged to repeatedly hear the word of God, yet he refused to listen to what the Lord was saying to him. And here we are on the other side of the cross and the empty tomb, on the other side of Pentecost, with a complete canon of scripture we are privileged to have God's word in a way that people throughout history could scarcely imagine. And frankly, many of your brothers and sisters in the world can scarcely imagine that we all have God's word in excellent translations in our own language that we can access anytime we want. It's a great privilege, but privilege is not enough unless you trust God's word and therefore put it into practice. And yet there's one more interesting question to ask. This question comes from John Woodhouse. Professor Woodhouse asks, is there anything good about death? After all, we are dealing with Ahab's death. So pause and think about that question for a moment. Is there anything good about death? Now ordinarily, we think of death as an enemy, and we are right to do so. Uh, death is not a natural thing in this world. It is an intrusion, right? So we rightly weep over the death of our loved ones. But that doesn't mean that death is entirely bad. Death can bring relief for the people of God, 
from the suffering that we experience in this world, as the Apostle Paul puts it, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that is far better for us than to continue to suffer the slings and arrows of living in a wicked world. Furthermore, Professor Woodhouse points out, death can also bring terrible wickedness to an end. And he says, I am glad that Hitler died, aren't you? I mean, would you want the Hitlers of this world to go on wrecking their evil forever? In God's world, wickedness will be limited. It will not be allowed to do all the damage that it could. There is something good about the fact that sinfulness is limited by death. Uh, last week I pointed out that First and Second Kings were written uh, at the time of the beginning of the Babylonian exile, primarily of the kingdom of Judah, but some of the people from the kingdom of Israel had gone down into Judah at this time, and they go into exile together. It's a time when Israel has no king, and therefore one of the messages that 1 Kings is saying is, God has sent us into exile justly for our sins. In fact, he has been far more long-suffering with us than any of us would be with those who rebel against us. The living God, in sending us into the Babylonian exile, has been entirely just. But second, and I think this is the more important point, this history makes clear how desperately Israel needed an entirely different category of king. Right? It wouldn't do to move from Ahab to Jehoshaphat and back and forth again. God would simply be sending you into exile after exile into our well-deserved judgment. What we need is a king who will also be our great shepherd. But here's where I'd like to conclude this evening and to conclude our study of Ahab's life. Not simply that we need such a king, but that we have such a king. The king is come. Jesus Christ has come, and all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. How does he execute his office as king? Our shorter catechism gives us the biblical answer. Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all of his and all our enemies. See, Christ crushing enemies under his feet is one of the things he does to glorify himself and to protect and vindicate his people. In the death of Ahab, we see why the knowledge of Christ's reign should bring us peace. Ahab was a shrewd ruler, a shrewd ruler who thought that he could outwit God and escape judgment. As he passed from this life to the next, Ahab discovered fully just how wretched a choice he had made. As tragic as Ahab's life and death truly are, the fact that Christ is permanently in possession of the universe's throne ought to bring us great security, confidence, and even joy. As we sometimes sing, no power of hell, no scheme of man 
can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here, in the power of Christ, I stand. Amen.